Good morning, all. Good to see you all this morning. And uh, some of you are uh, repeat offenders. I saw you last week. Somehow we let you in again, which is great to have you back this morning. And uh, some of you are new. And that is good to have you here. Those of you joining us home, great to have you as well. I want to just reiterate what Pastor Johnny was saying about the Calvary app. Whatever you're doing, you don't have to listen for the next five minutes. Take out your phone and download the Calvary app. You, you're free to be on your phones, and I won't judge you. Just go to the, Cal, just go to the, uh, the app store, Google Calvary Memorial, comma, uh, OP. You'll find our app and uh, download it. It's, it's, uh, it's a really nice little app. But where I want to just reiterate what Pastor Johnny was saying is we really want to stay in touch with you. It's so hard to stay in touch with you all during this pandemic. I saw someone last week, and I'm like, I haven't seen you for four months. I haven't even talked to them in four months, right? So uh, that's true for some of you. So with the app, it allows us to stay in touch with you. So let me really encourage you uh, to do that. We want to get back to where uh, we don't uh, want, like I used to get up and say, um, on my left, your right, you'll find our welcome register. Well, now it'll be like, in your pocket, you will find the welcome register. You know, just pull that out and uh, let us know that you're here. So some of you don't have smartphones, and that's fine. Um, and, uh, you know, as much as possible, encourage you uh, to use the website for sending in prayer requests as well. But if you have a smartphone and you can get apps, most of us do, let me encourage you to do that. All right. So uh, yesterday we had our hot dog fundraiser for By the Hand, and it was great to see uh, many of you out there and uh, encouraged by our continued partnership with By the Hand and uh, the ministry that, we're doing, that they're doing and that we're able to partner with them on. If you weren't able to come yesterday uh, to the fundraiser, but you still want to contribute, you still uh, can do that as well. And so you can look uh, on our website and reach out and figure out how to make a donation there. Speaking of hot dogs, uh, this morning we continue on in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world, which has nothing to do with hot dogs, but I thought I would just put that in there. And uh, last week we started the age of the kings, and we looked at the life of Saul in particular. Saul was appointed the first king of Israel, but he lost his throne through disobedience to God's command. Today we continue on in the age of the kings uh, by looking at the story of David, the king who came after Saul. Uh, last we saw David, we got a glimpse of him very uh, early on, or at the end of our sermon last week, but early on in his life. He was the shepherd boy who had just been appointed king to replace Saul. David goes on to become the most important king in all of Israel's history, so much so that he becomes the gold standard by which all future kings are judged. So when you're reading through the account of the kings in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, they, there would be summaries about the kings, and it would be, so-and-so did right in the sight of the Lord as David had done. So-and-so did not follow the Lord as David had not done, or had David had done, whichever that way it goes. But David becomes the gold standard by which all the future kings are judged. All of which to say is that throughout the Bible, King David in Jerusalem is a pretty big deal. The title of this sermon was, if you looked in your, uh, in your, your guide, your worship guide, was going to be honoring God in the good and the bad. But the sermon kept getting longer and longer, and earlier this morning as I was trying to uh, tidy up a few loose 
edges, I finally came to terms with the fact that doing both the honoring God in the good and in the bad sections was going to be entirely too long. And so I've dropped the section about honoring God in the hard times, and we're going to focus on honoring God in the good times. So now the title is Honoring God in the Good. Now, generally, it's never good to mess with your sermon right before you're about to preach it, because you never know what can go wrong with that. But we're here all the same, and the upside of this is as if, that, if this ends in a massive confusion, it'll be a shorter massive confusion than it otherwise would have been. So we're going to just see how we, how we do here. But more seriously, I think the Lord, when I was trying to decide which section do I keep, all right, it's going to get too long, I've got to pick either honoring God in the hard times or honoring God in the good times. Which section do I, do I pick? And, and I, I think the Lord has something here in this, because I think it can be very difficult more so even than honoring God in the hard times. It can be very difficult to honor God in the good times, in the midst of His blessings. I was reading through Matthew 19 this morning for my quiet time, and I I came upon Jesus' comment. He has an interaction with one of the religious leaders who asks Him about the good that He must do in order to inherit eternal life. And you remember Jesus' response in Matthew 19, verse 16. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? And then He says, there is only one good. Sometimes we translate it, there is only one who is good, but it amounts to pretty much the same thing. I think Jesus is saying there's only one good, the good that is God. I don't think his point so much is there's only one good and you're not good, but that everything that is good participates in the one good thing, which is God's goodness. So this morning we're going to focus on the goodness of God amidst, amidst God's blessings of goodness. Because it's not always easy to hang on to the goodness of God in the midst of God's blessings. Jesus goes on to say in that exchange with the rich young ruler, he says, how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. It's so hard for those who are in positions of wealth and prosperity to lay hold of God. There's a certain sense in which hardships and trials have a built-in reminder day by day that we need God. But when we get God's blessings, the blessings dull our sense of our need for God. I think it can be very hard for us to honor God in the midst of the good times. So that's what we're going to focus on today because David is a glorious example of how to not only honor God in the hard times, which, which he does, but how to also honor God in the midst of the good times. So much so that God rewards him with an eternal covenant. David is given a great covenant. We've just read it in 2 Samuel 7, and we'll unpack that a little bit more. But but David is given this eternal covenant that informs the whole rest of the story of the Bible and helps us understand the way that the story of the Bible unfolds. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to Start off, by, start off our sermon by reminding us of the overall story of the Bible to get a clear picture of how this moment in 2 Samuel 7 fits into the overarching story of the Bible, David's covenant. And then I want to look at David's example in 2 Samuel 7 to see how we can honor God in the midst of God's blessing. Because David finds a way in the midst of God's blessing, to continue honoring God. And I want 
that for us this morning. All right. So in order to understand how David's story, in particular David's story in 2 Samuel 7, fits in to the larger story of the Bible, we've got to go back to the beginning of our story of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 and then 2 and 3, we kind of get the, the, the stage setting, of it, as it were, <coughs> excuse me, uh, stage setting, as it were, of what is to come in the remainder of the story. God creates the world in beauty and in goodness. It's a good world that God has made. He creates humanity as the pinnacle of His creation, and He appoints humanity as the priest, kings, and queens of the world. Their job, as you might recall if you've been joining us for the whole of this story, is to breathe in and out the life of God, to mediate the life of God to all of creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But then Genesis 3, the story takes a diabolical turn. The adversary, the Satan, the Satan, the devil, he desires the world's throne for himself. This good world that God has made, he's given to Adam and Eve as the king and queen, the rightful king and queen. But the adversary wants it for himself, and so he enviously deceives the young king and queen into alienating themselves from God thus leading to their death. And the adversary absconds with the world's throne, setting himself up as a tyrant, imposter king. But there's an irony here because the life of the world is the life of God. That's the role of the priest king, to mediate the life of God to the world. And the thief who stole the throne is not a priest king. He cannot mediate God's life to the world. So when humanity died, the world began to die with it. And that's the world we live in today. It's a world marked by death. Still beautiful, yes, but it's a fading and a dying beauty. All of us sense it. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the world around us. But God, not content with the unmaking of His creation, He promises that a son from the line of Eve would one day arise to overthrow the adversary, reclaim the world's throne for humanity, restore life back to humanity, and through humanity return the divine breath back to the world. So we've been tracing that promise now for eight months working our way through the story and the stories of the Bible. This promise given to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 passes like a golden hereditary thread from Eve to her great-grandson Abraham and his wife Sarah, from Abraham and Sarah to their son Isaac, from Isaac to his son Jacob, and from Jacob to his son Judah, And from there, it winds its way to their great, 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 I don't know how many great, grandson, David. It's where we are today. So we've already seen in last week's sermon, David began as a shepherd boy, appointed as the future king by the prophet Samuel, the last of the judges. He went on to serve in Saul's army. So if we read from where we were last week, kind of up until 2 Samuel 7, we would see David serving in Saul's army. He was so successful in Saul's army, in fact, so successful that Saul became envious of him. 
Saul began to become jealous of David because the hearts of the people, the hearts of the Israelites, turned towards David and away from Saul. So Saul tries to kill David on many occasions, and finally David has to flee for his life. He gathers together a small following, and he flees out into the wilderness where he spends his days as an outlaw. He's kind of like a, if you read his story, he's like an ancient Israelite Robin Hood. Right, he goes and he defeats the Philistines and he saves the Israelites all while fleeing uh, from Saul. And all during this time, he trusted the Lord and he banked on God's promise that he one day would be the king of Israel. And sure enough, God's promise comes true. So fast forward to 2 Samuel 7, David has at last become king, 7-1 when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. He has been delivered from Saul. He's, he's been uh, in conflict with the Philistines and has defeated the Philistines. He's defeated some other uh, neighboring tribes. He has set himself up. He has been set up in Jerusalem as the king. He's waged successful war. He's gotten married. He's built what we read here is a cedar palace for himself. And then if we go back and look in chapter 6, we see that he's brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which Jerusalem has become the capital city of Israel. And if you recall from back earlier in our story, when God first came down to dwell among the Israelites back in the book of Exodus, he came down to dwell and he took his place within the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And at the center of the tent of meeting in the tabernacle was not a statue of God. Like the other pagan gods all had statues of themselves at the center of their sanctuaries. God didn't have a statue of himself. He had an ark. The ark was called the Ark of the Covenant. It's the ark of of God's presence, as it was sometimes called. And David had moved this ark and the tabernacle that surrounded it up into Jerusalem. And so here is David in chapter 7, having been given rest from all of his enemies. He's come into his throne. He is at his place of peace. And he looks around on all sides and he sees all that God has given him. And then he looks at the presence of God living in a tent Here's David with victory, honor, family, wealth, peace, a throne, and it troubles him that he, David, is living in a house of cedar while God, who has given him all of this, is living in a tent. And so he proposes to build a temple for God, something more befitting of God's dignity and honor. David has come into his kingdom. He has more than he ever dreamed of as a shepherd boy. And in the midst of his prosperity and blessing, he hasn't forgotten God. And that's not a small thing. The story of the kings all throughout the Bible, if you read the story of the kings, it's so often a story of the king's dependence upon God right up until the king is established. And then the king turns from God and instead begins to rely upon God's blessing, God's blessings that he has given to the king. King Uzziah is just one example of this, 2 Chronicles 26. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to read some sections from this. But in 2 Samuel 26, we see just a perfect example of this sort of thing that happens. 
King Uzziah was a great king in Israel. He was very powerful. And he starts off very well, but he ends very poorly. So let me just read some kind of pullouts from chapter 26. He becomes king when he's 16. He's young. He's really, he's in over his head and he seeks God. Because when we're in over our head and we feel like we're not adequate, we so often turn to God and King Uzziah turns to God. And then you go to verse 6 of chapter 26, if you're reading with me. He becomes king, he seeks the Lord, God makes him prosper, and he goes out and made war against the Philistines, and he broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. So God helps him against the Philistines. He's victorious. And then we read throughout this section here all the little things that he accomplished. The Ammonites, another tribe, paid tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread even to the border of Egypt. He became very strong. Uh, verse 9, he built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and the valley gate. He built towers in the wilderness, kind of outposts of his power. He cut out many cisterns or wells. He had large herds uh, in, the, in the various wildernesses. He had farmers and vine dresses in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. He had an army, verse 11, of soldiers fit for war. Uh, verse 12, the whole number of the heads of his father's households of mighty men of valor was uh, 2,600. Uh, and under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Uzziah prepared, verse 14, all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows and stones and slings. In Jerusalem, 15, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. These are famous uh, feats of engineering, uh, machines that could shoot out uh, arrows into attacking armies. And then look here at the uh, end of verse 15, and his fame spread far and he was marvelously helped till he was strong. So God just poured out blessings upon Uzziah. And then look at verse 16. And when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. And Uzziah goes on to disobey God, and he ends under God's judgment. He followed God while he felt a need for God. But once he had God's blessings, then he didn't feel a need for God anymore. And he turned away from God. And that's so true, I think, for so many of us, isn't it? I mean, don't, don't you feel this? I feel it. God is just a ladder to be climbed to get to His blessings. And once we've reached the blessed top, we kick away the ladder. We don't need the ladder anymore. Trials reveal the depth and trueness of our faith, but so do blessings. So do blessings. St. Augustine once prayed, looking back on his life, he said, it was the lovely things that kept me far from you. It wasn't the trials that kept Augustine from converting. It was the blessings of God that kept Augustine from converting. But that wasn't David's story, not here in 2 Samuel 7 and really not all throughout. The blessings and grace of God did not cause David to love God less, but to love God more. And when he became strong, he didn't become too proud for God. Why was that? What was the difference for David? What, 
marked David from Uzziah? What marks David sometimes from you and I? How did the lovely things not pull him away from God? Well, the answer isn't spelled out here in 2 Samuel in our text, chapter 7, but we find the answer in Psalm 18, which was read for us. Psalm 18 was written by David at right at this point, right here as he is in 2 Samuel 7, 1. He writes Psalm 18 after God had delivered him from Saul, given him rest on all sides. And in Psalm 18, we see David's heart. So let me turn us back to Psalm 18. Listen again to what he says. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Notice here in this psalm, David doesn't say, that God gave him a rock to stand upon, or that God gave him a fortress, or that God gave him deliverance. Look at his language here in this psalm. He says that God himself was his rock. God himself was the fortress. God himself was the deliverance. The reason that David did not leave God behind when he had been blessed by God was because David understood that God himself was the blessing. And therein, I think, we find the key to honoring God in the midst of God's blessings. We honor God in the midst of God's blessings when we remember that all earthly blessings are only blessings insofar as they convey to us the greater blessing that is God Himself. That's a little abstracted. So let me try reading that one more time and see if we can make sense of this. We honor God in the midst of our blessings when we remember that all earthly blessings are only blessings insofar as they convey or reveal or give to us the greater blessing that is God Himself. Now, let me see if I can make sense of this. I was trying to think of an illustration, and I had to, like, pause in my sermon, and I was taking a little break, walking around the kitchen, and I went to get a drink of water, and I thought, water faucet. That's the perfect illustration. That's what all you were thinking when I said my little bit. You were thinking water faucets. I, I uh, spent my summers roofing, and uh, when you're roofing in the summer, it can get pretty hot, and you, of course you bring your jug of, of water with you, but oftentimes if it's super hot, it gets to be about noon and you're out of water, and at that point, you are hoping that the customer has a hose or an outdoor water faucet, right? And so if you get thirsty, you kind of, you couldn't go into the customer's house because you're filthy and that wasn't, you know, wasn't allowed, but you could go use their hose, right? So you would look for their outdoor water faucet. Right? And, I, and that would be your, your sweet salvation. You know, you could make yourself all wet, drink your water. It was wonderful. Right? And I remember one time we were doing a newer construction job. And, uh, of course, it got to be about 2 p.m. and I'd run out of water. And so I began to walk around the outside of the house looking for the faucet. And I found the faucet. Sweet salvation. But it wasn't hooked up. There was no water in it. What good is a faucet without water? Because the goodness of the faucet is not the faucet, 
The goodness of the faucet is the water that is conveyed through the faucet. That's what gives the faucet its goodness. If you have water, you don't need the faucet. The faucet has no intrinsic value in and of itself except that it conveys something valuable. David learned that all good things in life are like the water faucet. They convey the goodness of God, and for that reason, they're to be received with gratitude. But the main thing, the real thing, the thing that truly matters is the goodness that is God Himself conveyed to us by the good things of this world. A loving spouse is the means by which God extends His love to you. Financial security is the means by which God lovingly cares for you. Recognition by our peers, honor by our peers, is the means by which God honors us. Pleasure is the means by which God affirms us, and on and on it goes. God extends His goodness to us through the blessings of the world. It's not as though our good God gives us independently good things. Rather, every good thing of this world participates in God's own goodness. Keep following me here because, again, this can get a little bit abstracted. Nothing is inherently good or independently good except God. Nothing is inherently or independently good except God. All created goods are just cups, just containers, just water faucets that convey the true living goodness that is God. So when Jesus is asked what good deed one must do to inherit eternal life, and His response is, there is only one good. I think maybe what Jesus is getting at there is that like, there's not like the goods that you do over here and the goods that you do over here, and you just kind of figure out which good. There's only one good. God is the one good. He's the one good. And insofar as we participate in this one true good, then we participate in God. The good things of the world are just water faucets. God Himself is the end of every human heart. So, quote St. Augustine once more, he says, the human heart is restless until it rests in God. The blessings of God without the presence of God are nothing more than shiny, beautiful, dry water faucets. It is God who makes every good thing truly good. Indeed, every good thing in this world is empty and dry without Him. How many times have you heard the story? I mean, we see it all the time in the news. But how many times have you heard the story of the man or the woman who has made it all the way to the metaphorical top of the mountain only to discover that there's nothing up there except thin air? I was talking with a friend of mine who lives out in Colorado. He's in the, the mountain states, and he was commenting to me, he's a pastor, he was commenting to me that the mountain states have the highest suicide rate of anywhere in the country which is interesting. And I said, why do you think that is? And he said, well, there's a lot of debate that goes around trying to figure out like why that is. But per capita, it has the highest suicide rates of anywhere in the country. And he said, there's so many people 
that have moved to the mountain state, that have come from the cities to get away from the rat race, to get away from all that kind of the, the busyness and greediness of life. And they come to the mountain states, to the mountains, thinking that here at last they will find peace. They literally are going to the top of the mountain, metaphorically and literally. And then they get there only to discover that it isn't any better. Seneca, the ancient uh, pagan philosopher, he says, you, you wonder why all this running away can't help you because you're running away in your own company. Well, there's truth in that, all right? But there's also truth in this, that you're running away from the emptiness of the world to just another part of the world that's also empty, right? The, the meaning of this life can't be just in this life. And maybe that's your story this morning. Maybe some of you Maybe some of you are trying to rest in the good things of this world without resting in God. You're trying to find your happiness in the things of this world, but that ultimately is the path of disappointment. We spend our whole lives trying to acquire the good gifts of God's good world, pleasure, wealth, honor, love. And then we do our own Christian version of this, don't we? We ask God to help us do that, right? We're like, God, I just, if I had the American dream, I would be happy. Would you help me get the American dream? And we invoke God's help to pursue blessings different than Him, apart from Him. Only in the end to realize that those things are not enough. And they're not enough because they're not enough. There's a reason, did you know this, that depression and anxiety and suicide are significantly worse in the most developed and wealthiest countries of the world. Isn't that remarkable? That the most wealthy and developed countries of the world are the ones that have all of the anxiety and depression and suicide. We have the best of everything that the world can give, and it's not enough. Because only God Himself is enough. He Himself is the living water that makes all His good gifts come alive and have meaning. Every good thing in the world is to be received with gratitude as water faucets of God's divine living water. But apart from God, no good thing, no matter how good it is, can have any meaning. No good thing, no matter how good it is, can have any meaning or bring ultimate satisfaction to your life apart from God. So give up trying to acquire goodness apart from God. Give up asking God to help you acquire goodness independent of Him. He Himself is your goodness. If you have the water, you don't really need the water faucet, because the water is the thing you really seek, and the water is enough. Do you have God's blessings in your life? All of us have some measure of blessings in our life. Don't spurn the gifts that God has given you. Those are the way that He mediates Himself to you. Receive every blessing of this world with gratitude, but always remember, never forget that the blessings of this world can only bless you insofar as God Himself is your truest and greatest blessing. David goes on 
or our text goes on rather in 2 Samuel 7 to talk about God's response to David in the midst of David's honoring of God, even in the midst of his blessings. David was faithful to God in the good times because he never forgot this truth that God himself was the true blessing. God honors David's faithfulness in the rest of chapter 7, which has been read for us. We see the word of the Lord come to the prophet Nathan and give a message to David in terms of in relation to David's uh, idea of building the temple for God. The sum of the message could be this, summarizing it briefly here. God says, basically, my current house is just fine. As though God were saying, I'm the source of goodness. I am goodness personified. Why do I need you to build me a good house? If I was looking for more than a tent, I would have said so a long time ago. But God does not reject the heart behind David's gift. David is told that he's not going to be the one to build the house. His son will do that. But David still is praised for having a heart that wants to honor God. Look in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 7. God says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You've offered to build me a house. I don't really need a house. I'm going to build you a house, is God's response. Look down at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The Lord isn't speaking here of a physical house. David already has one of those. God means a dynasty, a kingship. David's dynasty will carry on throughout all of eternity. God enters into, here in this moment, an eternal covenant with David. From David's line will come the long-promised son of Eve, the deliverer, the dragon slayer, the serpent crusher, the last and greatest king, the embodiment of the new humanity. This coming king, this son of David, will one day atone for sin, destroy death, and restore humanity to the world's throne. David has prized God himself as the truest and greatest blessing. And as a consequence, David is swept up into God's cosmic redemption and is given a unique place in redemptive history. And you and I can be swept up, too, into God's cosmic redemption. The greatest gift that God can give the greatest gift that he could give and has ever given is Jesus Christ. The same gift that he gives to David. Do you see Jesus isn't just a water faucet conveying God's goodness. Jesus is God's goodness. It's the uniqueness and the glory of Jesus. He is the personal living embodiment of eternal goodness. He is the personification of every good thing your heart could desire. So let's stop trying to wrench living water out of dry faucets. Let's give up our vain and empty pursuits and find our lives in God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The cup of living water that is Jesus is offered freely and without charge. 
Let go of trying to find goodness apart from God and find your goodness in God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? God, we thank You that You have given us the great gift of Yourself through Your Son, Jesus. Forgive us in all the ways that we've tried to find our meaning and our life and our identity and our happiness and our purpose in Your blessings apart from You forgetting that you are the true blessing that gives blessing to everything. God, help us to center our lives on you, to realize that in having you, we have the water, we have all that we need. We, we're thankful for the faucets that convey this water, but it's okay if the faucets go away, Lord, because you are the water that we have. Help us to drink deep from you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.